this podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Dana's second selection for season three, A Night at the Opera, starring the Marx Brothers, Alan Jones, and Kitty Carlisle. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be covering one of our mutual favorite westerns, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Directed by John Ford, starring James Stewart, Vera Miles, Lee Marvin, and John Wayne. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, Did you know that in the episode descriptions of every episode, we put the links to take you right to either the notes for that specific episode or to the full ranked and graded list of movies we've covered so far on the show? Just open up the episode and you can find them right there to get more information on the show. Then, as we announced in the preview episode a couple of weeks ago, we are taking the month of March this year to do another full trilogy and you can help us decide. We're going to be putting up a Twitter poll on our profile at Gmote Podcast to pick between four favorite franchises to cover this March. You can pick between the Jason Bourne trilogy, the Austin Powers trilogy, the Naked Gun trilogy, or the Oceans trilogy. If you don't have Twitter but would like to participate, please write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com with your vote. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. All right, so Dad, the Marx Brothers. You've said that Groucho is your favorite, and I realized this week that you've been trying to do a cheaper version of Groucho comedy for as long as I can remember. What is it about Groucho that so tickles your funny bone? Is it the acerbic wit, or are you really just trying to not be a member of any club that would have you as a member? Both. This started when I was a kid, and my dad absolutely loved Groucho. Because my dad used to talk about his game show that was on TV in the 50s, uh, You Bet Your Life. And my dad used to always talk about Groucho and how funny Groucho was. And so when a few times I was able to find Marx Brothers films, I actually got to watch Groucho. And I thought he was hilarious. And it's the acerbic wit. It's the wordplay, it's the sarcasm, it's all of that. And so I just have kind of patterned my humor in some ways after Groucho. And I've always loved Groucho for that reason. From a comic standpoint, having read a biography of Groucho, he was an asshole. But for the most part, he was funny. Well, I think that explains a lot about what people normally think of you. If I were to ask you to guess, however, what do you think would be my favorite of the Marx Brothers? Uh, Harpo. No. No, really? Chico? Yeah, Chico is my favorite. I don't know, for whatever reason, yes, and there is like kind of a tickled sensation that I get from Harpo every time he's on, but I don't appeal as much to the physical comedy. 
But there is something about every time Chico gets himself into a situation and he seems like he's the bumbling idiot, but he seems to also be smarter than everybody else at the same time. Yes. I don't know. It's just appealing to it's me. It's streetwise. Something like that. Which was really him in real life. Now, if I remember correctly, I didn't, I, I should have, but I did not look up the Marx Brothers in, in actuality. None of them were related. They were just stage performers that were named brothers, correct? No, they're all brothers. Oh, they are actually. Checo was the oldest, then Groucho, then Harpo, then Zeppo, who was in the early films, who was the uh, always played the straight man. And there's actually a fifth Marx brother who was Gummo. Gummo became a producer and uh, a talent agent. Zeppo became a Hollywood uh, producer and agent as well. The three older continued on. And so though they were actual brothers. And in, in fact, one Sadie Marks was their first cousin. And she happened to have a stage name of Mary Livingston, who was uh, married to Jack Benny. Oh, well, I guess it is a small world. So then what is your relationship to this movie specifically? Like I said, I really have always enjoyed Groucho. And back in... I would say it was about 9, 10, 11 years old, somewhere in there, Wisconsin Public Television on Sunday nights uh, later, like at uh, 10 o'clock or 10.30, would put old films on, and they would put the Marx Brothers on once in a while. And so I would always stay up, even though it made for a long Monday in school, but I would I would kind of quietly stay up or my dad would stay up and watch and I would stay up with him till my mother figured out we were both up and watch the Marx Brothers. But about, I would say about 1994, 1995, I made a, a personal mission to watch every Marx Brothers film. So I went through and I bought all of the films or had them recorded off of TCM on, on uh, the DVR. And I watched every Marx Brothers film. You couldn't have had a DVR in 1994, 1995. That would not be around for like another 10 years. Okay, so... You would have been recording them on VHS, yeah. Anyway, so I watched all of them. And so each one has its um, moments, has something special about it. The first five were during the years that they were at Paramount. There were a lot more completely uh, anarchist just trying to destroy everything that uh, people held close or believed in, uh, just made fun of everything. Post-Paramount years, they seem to be much more heroic, attacking the, or skewering the the elites, the wealthy, the pompous. If and, any of uh, you are equally confused by his use of the term Paramount, that's one of the few words that my father can never pronunciate correctly. It's Paramount just for our audience's sake. Thank you. Fuck you. Anyway. Oh, it truly is a Marx Brothers production now. We're cooking with gas. Yes. Anyway. I think the first time I watched this specific film was last year, or excuse me, uh, gosh, it's already hard to think it's two years ago. 2020, during the quarantine, I watched this, one other one that I can't think of. It might have been Animal Crackers and Duck Soup. And all three of them were on the Watch TCM app at one point or another. But they had the introductions. I want to say they were doing like all three of them right in a row. 
And the TCM guest introductions were by Billy Crystal, which I thought were <laughs> priceless because he really kind of explained what their mark is historically for both a physical comedy set. And then there's kind of the bridge, which is usually Chico. And then there is the acerbic, sarcastic, witty style of comedy, which is all Groucho. And all three of them all have different levels of comedy that clearly have defined influences going forward. And I think that I I wouldn't be too far off in saying what I did last week, that even now you can see a lot of the reflection of this vaudevillian comedy still in place in normal comedies today. Yes. All right. So before we get too far, uh, do you have a plot summary for us? I do. Mrs. Claypool, Margaret Dumont, is convinced by her business manager, Otis B. Driftwood, Groucho Marx, that donating 200000 to the New York Opera will get her into high society. Herman Gottlieb, Sig Ruman, director of the New York Opera Company, indicates that he will use the money to sign the greatest tenor in the world. Otis B. Driftwood meets the aspiring singer, Ricardo Allen Jones, who is determined to win the love of fellow performer Rosa, Kitty Carlisle. Aided by new friends, Ferrello, Checo Marx, and Tommaso, Harpo Marx, Otis attempts to unite the young couple, but faces opposition from the the preening star Les Pari, Walter Wolf King, who also has his sights on Rosa. Traveling from Italy to New York, Otis, Ricardo, Friello, and Tommaso overcome repeated hijinks to win the day. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Groucho Marx as Otis B. Driftwood, Harpo Marx as Tommaso, Chico Marx as Fiorello, Kitty Carlisle as Rosa Castaldi, Alan Jones as Ricardo Baroni, Margaret Dumont as Mrs. Claypool, Sig Ruman as Herman Gottlieb, Walter Wolf King as Rodolfo Laspari, and Robert Emmett O'Connor as Sergeant Henderson. Recognition for this film, the film grossed a total, domestic and foreign, of $1,815,000 and made a profit of $90,000. This would be the equivalent of $36,936,177.37 and $1,831,545.99 respectively. It was recognized on the following AFI lists. In 1998, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies as a nominee. In 2000, it was nominated for AFI's 100 Years 100 Laughs as number 12. In 2005, AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes, Otis B. Driftwood, It's Alright, That's in Every Contract, That's Why They Call It a Sanity Clause. Fiorello, you can't fool me, there's no sanity clause, was a nominee. In 2006, AFI's Greatest Movie Musicals, it was nominated. And in 2007, AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies, the 10th anniversary edition, it made number 85 on the list. The British rock group Queen paid homage to this film by naming one of their most famous albums after it. The film's script is credited as the basis for the 1992 film Brain Donors, executive produced by David Zucker and Jerry Zucker of Airplane and Naked Gun fame. The first season, 23rd episode of the Bob Newhart show titled Bum Voyage, features an homage to the stateroom scene where Bob and a dozen cast members are crammed into Bob and Emily's stateroom with Howard Borden announcing that, quote, 
the first one that makes a Marx Brothers joke gets it. <laughs> Cindy Lauper featured a similar overcrowded stateroom gag in her music video for the song Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Sting also recreated the overcrowded stateroom gag in his music video for the 1991 song All This Time. An eight-season episode of Seinfeld titled The Pothole features an homage to the stateroom scene in which the four main characters all cram into a small janitor's closet that Elaine is using to get Chinese food delivered. They all end up spilling out after Kramer spills ammonia. Did you know? Groucho Marx said that this was his favorite among his movies. Did you know? Originally, before its reissue in the 1940s, the movie started with a title card that places the movie in Milan, Italy, there was then a musical number in which people on the street were passing along the melody line of a song, as in the Maurice Chevalier vehicle Love Me Tonight, 1932. The song was followed into the restaurant where Mrs. Claypool was waiting for Otis B. Driftwood. It is said the scene was cut during World War II to remove references to Italy, and unfortunately, the main negative was cut as well, so the scene is now lost. This is why the stated running time of the movie was three minutes longer than it is now. Did you know? Kitty Carlisle initially refused to take the part when she was asked to mime someone else's voice. She won, and the song she performs, Alone, later became her signature tune. Did you know? Harpo Marx did many of his own stunts. He later said it was a silly thing for a 47-year-old non-stuntman to have done. Did you know? In the scene where the three stowaways are impersonating the three greatest aviators in the world, Driftwood seems to talk gibberish with the dignitaries. Actually, it is English. If played backwards, it can be heard that what they are saying, quote, this man is accusing you of being imposters, etc. It was recorded normally, then reversed and dubbed over the scene in post-production. Did you know? When producer Irving Thalberg learned that the fourth member of the Marx Brothers, Zeppo Marx, would not be joining the brothers at MGM, he asked the troupe if they would be willing to take a pay cut from their usual fee. Groucho Marx did not miss a beat when he responded, Without Zeppo, we're worth twice as much. <laughs> Did you know? This was the Marx Brothers' first film with MGM. In preparation, MGM sent them on a nationwide tour, performing potential bits live before current MGM films were shown. This opportunity for advanced audience feedback is one reason this film became known as one of their best. Did you know? An additional scene was cut from the picture in subsequent releases and is now considered lost. The scene occurred just after the scene in the park where Rosa tells her friends she has been fired from the opera. The Marx Brothers, Rosa, and Ricardo hop on a passing fire engine, which takes them to the opera house. After lighting his cigar in the fire engine's smokestack, Groucho Marx comments, This is the first car I've ever been in which the cigarette lighter actually works. Alright, let's take a quick break and we will be right back. All right, Dad, what is this movie about, or what would be your elevator pitch? Three comics turn opera into a farce. Not bad. Because MGM really wanted to, I guess, promote uh, a more mainstream film that could be accessible to people, and not quite so, as you put it, anarchical as their previous work at Paramount, two star-crossed lovers unwittingly team up with three grifters to break onto the opera scene in New York. Okay. Best performance? Groucho. Hmm, Was there why any did doubt? I figure you would go there? So it, it's Groucho. I just love Groucho. <laughs> his uh, timing, his uh, wit, his ability to uh, to say a line and 
to uh, look away, to raise an eyebrow, the facial expressions, every aspect of them is just, it's years of practice before a live audience on stage in vaudeville. I don't know if there will ever be another Groucho as a result. Yeah, it's really hard to have his timing. I don't know what it was about him, but the way he just delivers lines, because I can read them on a page and I, I hear his timing in my head, but I'm sure if I delivered them, they're not nearly as funny. Well, there's a reason why uh, stand-ups have done comedy well. It's because stand-ups have had that interaction with an audience, have developed their own timing and the pace of the uh, of the comedy itself. But even then, it's just not to the same level because stand-ups have certain things. Vaudeville, they were performing every night for weeks, months, uh, on end. And so they just developed a persona that just transcended what even a stand-up can do. For me, it was Chico. And I think this has a lot with him being my favorite of them. But the contract scene, I think he ends up making the contract scene a lot more than Groucho does. Because Groucho is just kind of acquiescing to a lot of his demands. And he's the one that's kind of doing most of the primary riffs from that scene. Or you want to take the piano playing musical interlude from on the ship. I thought the way that he played the piano, there are just some people that when you can play the piano, they're mesmerizing just to watch them play it. And for me, that was one of the instances, how he just does his finger work going back and forth and doing the little riffs, then increasing the speed. And it's just fascinating to me. So I, I again, I think this was a soft spot for me more than anything else. So I'll go with him as my best performer. I had Groucho as my best secondary. I think it's hard to nominate anybody really other than the Marx Brothers for anything in this film because they're just carrying so much of the water that's going on. You might be able to get away with something with Alan Jones because, again, he's kind of the straight man to this whole thing. But I just don't think any of them are nearly as engaging or have as much to do as all three of them because it is a venue for all three of them to show off their talents and skills. Whether you talk about Harpo with his harp playing on brand, of course, Groucho with all of his one-liners, his constant back talk to just about everybody, his ability to be extremely quick-witted in every situation and kind of weasel his way out of everything. I went with him as the secondary just because I think he's carrying so much water when it comes to like the stateroom. Him ushering people in and not having it seem ridiculous is what makes the scene. Oh yeah, come right in. Oh, we have the food, boys. All right, right over in the corner, you'll find... I mean, it's just that that constant delivery, and he never seems phased by the whole thing. So just allowing everybody into the room at the same time, I think he is well-deserving of my best secondary. Who did you go with as your best secondary? Harpo. Actually, as time has gone by, I've learned to really appreciate Harpo as a comedic genius. The ability for him to be funny without, you know, in pantomime, without speaking a single line is just overwhelming. You know, and some of the things he did, uh, the mirror scenes and some that he did in another film that he ended up doing with uh, Lucille Ball on television later, he just was, there was a sweet aspect of him. But the Marx Brothers themselves, they just... Harpo has a knack for coming across as being just 
a naughty boy. Even though he's an adult man, he's just a naughty boy. You know, and I always remember this story George Burns told. He and Gracie Allen were, were vacationing in the Poconos, which is upstate New York. Or Harpo Marx got on a plane, flew from Los Angeles out to New York, took a car up to the Poconos, rented a rowboat, stripped naked, rode by Gracie and George naked, went back, dressed, got in the car, went back, flew back to Los Angeles, never said a word. You know, it strikes me in the moment here, we actually do have a modern Chico and uh, Harpo, if uh, you'll allow me. I think it's Penn and Teller. Particularly, I think Teller is a very dead ringer for Harpo. To some extent, Teller has patterned himself after Harpo. And I think that's exactly, I think that is actual, actually correct in what I've studied. And I, I mean, as they've had their show on, uh, on the uh, WB network. It hadn't been the WB for a long time. It's the CW, my friend. A CW. Okay. The CW network. I've spent a lot more time studying their work and, and their comedy and their magic and such. So and I, I, I agree with you. I think that does fit. All right. So most charismatic. For me, it's Groucho simply because I always have loved Groucho. I went with Harpo. It's hard to look away whenever he's in a scene. I mean, the I know quick change... I, I, had it, I had it both ways, but I had to go with my childhood fantasy of always being like Groucho to some extent. I just find Harpo's charismatic nature to be his enthusiasm. It seems to rub off on everybody that's watching him. All right, let's go to best scene then. These are the ones that I had down. Dinner at 7, the opening scene. Tommaso's quick changes. Contract negotiation. The stateroom. Musical interludes. The three aviators. Hotel switch. And opening night. Did I miss any? No, I think you got all of them. All right. I usually do. At least the key ones, yes. So then what is the best scene out of these? I just... The reason I picked this film is the stateroom scene. It is, to me, the quintessential Barks Brothers scene. It is just the absurdity of it. And I don't know if you noticed, this was not just done in one direction. They did it in two different directions. Because they have it so that the door, entry door is on the left for part of it. And they actually shift and have the camera so that the door is in front of you for part of it. So that they actually have it filmed in two dimensions so that it makes it more believable as to how compact the scene actually is. I would agree with you. I think that is the best and probably most indelible. It's certainly not my favorite. I think from a technical standpoint, the amount of things going on in that scene and I lost count, but I can't imagine how many people actually were in that scene. And you'd probably have an issue with like uh, a work comp complaint trying to do that scene today. (laughs) Uh, Maybe. There are just too many people in one space stepping on each other. 
I did additionally see in the research, they still have no idea who the woman who actually delivers a couple of lines, the woman that comes in as the manicurist, they have no idea who that is. She's uncredited, and no one can find anything about her. Well, from what I gather, probably was one of uh, Groucho's lovers. They have no idea. It's lost to time. He had many, both during and uh, after or in between marriages. I see. Favorite scene, then? Uh, The stateroom scene. That's... Like I said, that's why I picked it. For me, my favorite, though, is the contract scene. Just from being a lawyer's kid, the party of the first pod shall be known as the party of the first pod. No, no, that's that's a no good. What's wrong with it? I don't know. I, I just don't like it. Oh, all right, well, let's go to the next part. The party of the second part shall be known as the party of the second part. No, no, that's no good. What you need to have is the party of the first part. It goes to the second party. Then you got some. I mean, just, the, the, I mean, even when they do the callback at the end, the party, the 10th part, I'm just like, nope, okay, I'm good. <laughs> okay. Anyway, but I agree with you. Most indelible for me is the stateroom because it's been copied so often and it's kind of its own comedy trope to have so many things stuffed in a closet like that and then compiling back out. I think... The fact that we have so many homages as I put up at top, I think by far it's the most famous thing about this movie. Yeah. All right. We are at another breaking point. Let's take another quick break and we'll be right back. All right, Dad, before we move any further with the comedy, let's uh, take a second to pause and uh, remember some people this week. We lost a few giants in the industry. Yes, um, I'm going to take a little more time than I normally do simply because of the weight of some of the uh, individuals we lost this week. First of all, Michael Wilmington, who was a film critic for the Chicago Tribune, grew up in uh, Wisconsin, uh, went to the UW film program and was an actor at the the University of Wisconsin and uh, film critic in there before he got the job in the Chicago Tribune. When I can tell, he came either pretty close or within a reasonable amount of time of replacing Gene Siskel as the film critic for the Chicago Tribune. So he passed this last week. Marilyn Bergman, who um, was a songwriter who I was not familiar with until I started actually uh, delving into uh, her career. She and her husband wrote uh, The Way We Were, Please Don't Bring Me Flowers, She herself won three Academy Awards, four Emmys, three Grammys, and two Golden Globes for her music. She did the title track or did most of the the score for Yentl, the Barbara Streisand film in the 70s, and uh, did a number of other films and other scores. So she had a very long and successful career as a music creator. Uh, we lost Bob Saget, a comedian, television uh, host, Full House, How I Met Your Mother, where he was did the voiceover as uh, aged father, and America's Funniest Home uh, Videos. Just on tour again and passed away. We still are waiting his uh, cause of death, but uh, another loss uh, that's been felt by a lot of the comedic community. We also lost Peter Bogdanovich, uh, film director. Did the last picture show, What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon, among others. 
at one time he was a hot young director, had a few um, few clunkers in there, kind of tarnished his image, but he had a long history in Hollywood, not only just as a director, but as a champion of old Hollywood and of Hollywood history. He befriended uh, and interviewed uh, Howard Hawks, John Ford, Orson Welles, and he became close. Orson Welles actually, during the later part of his life when he was in financial trouble, lived with Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich had a history of some substance abuse. He had a long history of having relationships with co-stars. He had a long relationship with Sybil Shepard that broke up his first marriage following uh, her being in the uh, last picture show. That lasted for a number of years. He was involved with Dorothy Stratton, who was the former Playmate Playmate of the Year, who was murdered by her ex-husband. That one created a large black period for Bogdanovich. Uh, most people now would recognize him as playing uh, a part on the television show HBO project, The, the Sopranos. He was the shrink to the shrink. Yes, Elliot Kupferberg. He, uh, I would, I, somebody that had done a lot of things, a lot of uh, podcasts and such about old Hollywood and some of the interviews he had done. So another big loss, not just from a standpoint of films in general, but film history and being a film historian. And then I don't know how I can go in, in a few words, categorize this loss, uh, Sidney Poitier. In 1967, Poitier, during the height of the civil rights movement, when tensions were at its highest, where there was huge backlash against civil rights and uh, uh, African Americans by a lot of people in this country, Poitier was considered the most bankable and the most charismatic star in Hollywood in uh, 1967. He had a series of films in the 60s that were, were just phenomenal. He uh, played uh, with Tony Curtis in the Defiant Ones in the early 60s. Uh, then there was a film, Patch of Blue, where he, uh, again, was given great reviews. He won an Academy Award for Lilies of the Field, uh, where he was a handyman working with a group of nuns and building a church. He didn't just win an Academy Award. He was the first male black actor to win an Academy Award. Correct. At a time when it was, um, you know, African-Americans were not in high regard in Hollywood. It was difficult for them to find parts. And then uh, he did Raisin in the Sun. And 1967, as indicated, were three of the most memorable films. To Serve With Love, uh, where he was a school teacher who uh, wins over his unruly students at a London secondary school. In the Heat of the Night is the determined police detective Virgil Tibbs. And then Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is uh, the doctor who wishes to marry a young white woman he recently met. Parents of the woman, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, in their final film together. He worked with a lot of historical figures on the civil rights movement, including Jackie Robinson and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And is credited for having really created a place in Hollywood for African-Americans and minorities. He continued to be a champion of civil rights until his death 
just recently at age 94. Just a phenomenal actor. If uh, you have not seen any of these films from 1967, they're powerful. They're awe-inspiring. The level of acting that was performed was just... I don't know how uh, how anybody can do three films within that time frame and have done the job he did. So, great loss to uh, movies. But the nice part of movies and of the entertainment industry is their work lives on. And as such, we already have covered In the Heat of the Night. I think it's one of our first episodes. I think number eight, if I remember correctly. I'm sure it's in our early catalog, so you can go find that one. But we also have Guess Who's Coming to Dinner coming up next month for our Black History Month recognition. Make sure you are subscribed to the show to follow along for that one when we get to that point. Additionally, we will be covering some Bogdanovich films later on, but I would also suggest there was a really great small miniseries podcast that the TCM folks did in order to remember him before he passed away about two years ago in 2020 during the pandemic that was really good. and also contains some interviews he did with some of the old classic directors at the time that are really worth listening to if you haven't done so before. So we take a moment here to recognize all of those titans who have passed this week and give them a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. All right, let's move to best funniest lines. My first one up, Otis. You're willing to pay him $1,000 a night just for singing? Why, you can get a phonograph record of Minnie the Moocher for 75 cents. And a buck and a quarter, you can get Minnie. Otis B. Driftwood, could he sail tomorrow? Forello, you pay him enough money, you could sail yesterday. Otis, I'm practically a hermit. Henderson, oh, a hermit? I noticed the table set for four. That's nothing. My alarm clock is set for eight. That doesn't prove a thing. Checko. We take no gasoline. We take no airplane. We take steamship, and that's friends is how we fly across the ocean. Otis. Now on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Otis. You know the old saying, two's company, five's a crowd. Henderson. Am I crazy, or are there two beds in here? Otis, now which question do you want me to answer first, Henderson? Mrs. Claypool, I think we'd better keep everything on a business basis. Driftwood, every time I get romantic with you, you want to talk business. I don't know. There's something about me that brings out the business in every woman. Otis, it's all right. That's in every contract. That's what they call a sanity clause. Fiorello, you can't fool me. There's no sanity clause. Mrs. Claypool, get off that bed. What would people say? They'd probably say you're a very lucky woman. Laspari. Never in my life have I received such treatment. They threw an apple at me. Otis. While watermelons are out of season. Otis. I have here an accident policy that will absolutely protect you, no matter what happens. If you lose a leg, we'll help you look for it. Otis. When I invite a woman to dinner, I expect her to look at my face. That's the price she has to pay. I'm out. That's all I had. All right. Stanley Rubric time. First up is Legacy. Do you want to go first or second? Uh, I'll go second. All right, for me, Legacy on this one. I think if you talk to most industry people or the people that at least are familiar with this movie, I think there's a reverence for the Marx Brothers and Marx Brothers movies. And I think this one kind of climbs to the top of the list. 
I think you've talked to most of the critics or film historians. It's kind of the same way. In the uh, TCM app where this was on this week for me in order to watch it, they had Leonard Maltin on discussing the guy who did the cartoon drawings for all of the posters of the Marx Brothers movies, and he talked about this. This is his favorite of the Marx Brothers movies. So I think there's a clear reverence where this is a five for the industry because comedians look at this as kind of some of the origin of movie comedy and where we transition from the vaudeville stage onto what was possible in actual movies. So that's got the first layer. But then on top of it, you look at the through lines of stand-up comedy and one-liners and the dry acerbic wit. I mean, we discussed yesterday all of Donald, or excuse me, we discussed last week Donald O'Connor's one-liners constantly. All of that has its uh, roots in Groucho Marx. So for me, that's a five for industry. But unfortunately, on the other side of it, I don't even know if the general public knows who the Marx Brothers are. I think they're more familiar with the Three Stooges than they are ever going to be with the Marx Brothers. And that's kind of a travesty because I actually think that the Marx Brothers are funnier. So on that standpoint, I ended up at a two for the public because I don't think many people have seen a Marx Brothers movie. I don't think there are many people that know of them. There are some very few that kind of keep it around like us. But I don't know how much of the non-film historian watching public are going to necessarily know who these guys are or have any idea what this movie is. And I frankly think, unfortunately, it's going to mean that this episode is rather low rated. So I went with a two, seven total for Legacy. I, I agree with your comments as far as the industry. And I would concur with a five. And I agree. As far as legacy for the public, there is a difference based on age. And I think that uh, the Generation X is the defining moment because I'm the last, actually the last uh, 34 days of the baby boom from, you know, as far as that goes. And we grew up you know, Mark Groucho was around. Groucho was doing it talk shows. Groucho was still there. The or the age group behind me, which would include your mother, was well aware of Groucho and knew the lines of Groucho and knew about Harpo and that aspect of it. After that, it has kind of fallen off. The younger generation does not understand, know, or appreciate, which I think is kind of a travesty. I, if, if I was to make a list of things that younger people should probably watch or see uh, so they have a greater uh, appreciation of the art of film and of the matter and means by which film is done, one of the Marx Brothers films, probably this one would be on that list so that they had some appreciation. So to that extent, I went with a, I kind of split it and went with a three. So I had an eight total. So that's seven and a half between us as the average. Impact significance, I went with a four for the industry. I thought it had generally positive reviews. I thought that the Marx Brothers were very much a influence on comedy of the time of where things went as far as 
you know, physical comedy, I think was the biggest thing at the time, but also we already drew a through line 17 years later, we're having influences of Groucho in another completely different musical. So I want to make this so that it's a big deal, but not like the biggest of deals. The Marx Brothers were kind of set apart to their own as far as movie stars. They weren't necessarily a huge entity of the the industry, like they were the biggest marketable stars, but they were kind of in that next tier of the, the great movie stars of the 30s. So I put this one as a four for the industry. I think it was a three for the public. Again, we go back to some of the box scores, I mean, or the box office scores. I think that... It had a decent reception. It was a generally popular movie, but that it kind of was not necessarily like the movie of the moment. I know this is 1935 and they did a theatrical re-release. So there was an audience for all of these, but I'll just kind of split the difference or kind of hit the middle and go with a three. So I ended up at a seven again. Impact and significance for the industry. I thought it was well received and well considered. The public seemed to appreciate the Marx Brothers. There was a certain aspect that uh, some of the Marx Brothers fans from the previous movies were kind of disappointed that their uh, methods of just attacking everything and and anyone, anarchy, had been tapered or tempered in this film. So to that extent, I went with a 3.5 for the general public and a 4.5 for the industry for a seven. You might want to add that again. That's an eight. Oh, my mistake. An eight. So that ends also at a seven and a half between us with the exact same scores as the first category. Novelty, though, I don't think there's a ton that's particularly novel about this, given that this is their sixth film. It does create the Marx Brothers format for the rest of their movies with MGM. It's one of their most acclaimed movies, so I think it it has a bit of extra novelty from just being one of the more classic or better well-done movies. It has two of their most iconic scenes, the contract scene as well as the stateroom that we've mentioned multiple times before. And the comedy is still quite engaging and striking, and I do think that there is a novelty just to them as performers, but I ended up at a six. I, if you'll need help with the math, I can do that. I also had a six. That's a little uh, surprising to me. I would have thought you would have went higher. No, because really having seen all of their films and realizing that the first two or three films, Animal Crackers, Duck Soup, had been actually Broadway plays or performances and were converted to movies, and they had done other Broadway stuff in between movies, it was... It was basically vehicles to showcase their talents. There wasn't anything new. They had, you know, this is a time in Hollywood where certain performers, especially in comedy, had created a persona. Uh, Jack Benny had his own persona. Fred Allen had his own persona. George Burns and Gracie Allen had theirs. The Marx Brothers had theirs. Bob Hope had his. And, uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't new and fresh. Like last week's movie, I would guess that this is very much like, so we were talking about Singing in the Rain being kind of a collection of songs that they wanted to do and needing a story to kind of connect all of them. 
This is a bunch of set pieces for the Marx Brothers that they wove a story in between. Correct. And that's the way a lot of their films feel like. It was it was an opportunity for each of the three to do the things that they did best and to be funny doing it. So again, that's a six between us. Classicness, your category. Uh, this is one where I am just amazed yet at how well the humor holds up. I mean, this film was 1935, and there is not a lot of films or a lot of things that were done in 1935 that if you if you did show it today and didn't tell anybody the time frame, that they would immediately not... There isn't anything about this that's cringeworthy. The only thing I can think of is, is just the abuse, physical abuse levied on Harpo that kind of made you cringe a bit. So to that extent, I went down a little, and I went with a 8.5 simply because I, the, the, the comedy holds up so well the stories themselves hold up well. There's nothing about this that really doesn't portray itself very well. I'm a little bit surprised. I'm actually going to go above you uh, in this category, so I thought for sure you would have probably given it higher marks. But again, a little bit of surprise. There's a scene where Ricardo has to step in to save Rosa from what looked like was going to be attempted raped by Lisperi that doesn't sit well, but I think it's kind of nitpicking because nothing really happens in that scene for the most part. But I agree with you. The comedy still holds up, which is amazing for being almost 80 years old. I'm going to be kind of high on this as a result of that. So where it drops the real point is something that is so central to the course of this film and the story. It's the commitment to a dead art opera. We can't even get the general audience of Americans to watch musicals, and then we want to have to make them watch a movie about a musical in Italian? I'm going to drop it one point to get it to a nine. So that's an 8.75 between us. Rewatchability, I'll let you go second so you have the final word on that one, but I'm going to go with an eight. It's good, it's humorous, it's short. Like Roger Ebert, I could skip maybe a few scenes here or there that are kind of unnecessary to me, kind of the love story aspect of it, or some of the opera singing, but overall it's an enjoyable revisit for me anytime it's on, and I am surprised not having been really immersed in the March Brothers as you were as a kid, how much I actually enjoyed these when I went and finally watched them over the last couple of years. So I ended at an eight. It's the kind of film, because of its difficulty in finding it sometimes, this is one that I did not actually own, so I actually had to find it. I, I think I need to go out and find or buy the remaining Marx Brothers films so that I have them all in my collection so that I can watch them. But it just it's it just put a smile on my face. It, it's something that I can feel like, you know, I'm having a bad day. I could put this on. And it's going to make my day brighter. It's not one that's necessarily fall down. I'm laughing. I'm you know rolling on the floor laughing, but pretty close to just a nice chuckle, a nice day, a nice cap on the day. That's an in- interesting strategy, Cotton. Yeah, thanks. So I'm going to go with a nine point five. All right. 
So that's an 8.75 as well between us. For audience score, we had an 86 for Google users. We had a 91% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.85 overall. So that gives us a 7.5 for Legacy, 7.5 for Impact Significance, a 6 for Novelty, an 8.75 for Classicness, an 8.75 for Rewatchability, and an 8.85 for Audience score. That gives us a total of 47.35 points and currently places it between Beverly Hills Cop and the Grand Budapest Hotel on the list. Okay, that's not that bad. All right. So, any remaining questions for you? A couple of comments. In the process of doing the research, Alan Jones, who I didn't really know very well, did a few more films, did some Broadway and such. Actually, I did not realize his son was Jack Jones. Now, that's not going to mean anything to you, but Jack Jones was a singer classics, the Frank Sinatra, Johnny Mathis, uh, Edie Gourmet, uh, Steve Lawrence type of that 60s, early 70s. His claim to fame... Robert Goulet. Yes, Robert Goulet. His claim (laughs) to fame, Jack Jones, was a song he did for a television show. And I found out that Alan Jones and his son, Jack Jones, both portrayed on this show. The love boat promises something for everyone. Jack Jones did that song. And so the two of them actually appeared as father and son on the cruise ship, the love boat, at one point in time in the 80s. One of your mother's favorite television shows. Well, way to date her and yourself at the same time. Well, yeah, we're children of the 80s. What can we say? They had to be. You're a child of the 90, of 1990. Well, if we're going that way, then you'd technically be a child of the 60s. Well, technically I am, but I mean, my developmental time frame, I grew up, I grew up uh, watching Laugh-In and uh, Flip Wilson and and then in the 70s with all the great television with Mary Tyler Moore and MASH. Um, I got reruns on Disney Channel of Brotherly Love, Smart Guy, and Boy Meets World. Yeah, and and how you ever developed into oh, and some growing sort of pains. media critic. I have no idea after that. I don't know. I eventually grew up. Yeah. Questions I had. How much do Fiorello and Otis get for their 10%? Well, if you're going to go there, who gets the 10% first? You mean uh, before the taxes? Yes. And the Oklahomas. Not bad. Not bad. Does Lesperi go back to Italy? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of a dick. And he's an Italian dick on top of it. And he wasn't bald, so he can't be a true Italian. I don't know. They did pull a wig off of him. Eh, true. But he still had hair. Yeah, true Italians, the hair is everywhere but on your head. <laughs> Including between the knuckles. Ugh, yeah, well. <laughs> All right, any last thoughts for the week? Uh, looking forward to next week, it's... As we keep going through these, and you always ask what it is, I'll just say it right up front. I watched The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance sitting with my dad on a Saturday night at, after I got home from a, like a high school football game or basketball game 
you know, it was like 11 o'clock at night and we're sitting down and I'm, you know, my dad's going, hey, why don't you sit down and watch this? Which was about more than what my dad ever said. Yeah, it's more than my dad ever said either. Yeah, yeah. Right, Except sure. a, a particular football game, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, yeah, as we're as we're looking through that, it's just amazing yet to think about how many of these films were based upon, uh, you know, my dad saying, saying something or telling me I should watch something. So, well, there's a reason it's Ronnie Duncan Studios. Yes, I know. This is only going to be our second, third uh, John Ford movie. Which is surprising. So I think this is his most clearly defined movie as far as like, what is it about? I think it kind of hits you over the head with what it's about, but that doesn't make it any less significant. Even though it's kind of surface level, I do think that this one is much more accessible by being surface level to the general public that's not as familiar with Western tropes or just the Western in general. I think to some extent it was John Ford saying, you know, I'm getting really old and I don't have much time left. So instead of trying to hide my meaning, I'm going to just hit you in the forehead with it so that you understand what I'm doing before I die. Well, either way, it is probably, it's in my top three of favorite Westerns. It's probably trading out between Rio Bravo, this one, and gosh, I can't even think of what what the other one would be. So it's probably one of those two. Yeah, for various reasons. I still like the original True Grit. I don't know why, but I remember sitting and watching that film at least twice with my dad. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special. Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be covering one of our mutual favorite westerns, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, directed by John Ford, starring James Stewart, Vera Miles, Lee Marvin, and John Wayne. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at gmodepodcast, or find us on Twitter at gmodepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 